Well, we all have uh, moments in our lives that, that are shaping, uh, transformative moments that, are, um, that affect us to the extent that we're different people after these moments in our lives than we were before them, in both good and bad ways. For me, one of these events took place uh, heading into my freshman year of college. Uh, two or three years before that, my grandparents, who all my childhood had lived in Arizona, decided that they were going to move back to Indiana, uh, where I grew up, where my family lived. And I was excited for them to move back. I was excited to have this opportunity to spend holidays with them. They would now be a two-hour drive down the road instead of three days across the country. So I was excited. My grandfather was uh, a strong, jovial uh, just fun person to be around. And so I was excited to, to get to know him more, to build that relationship with him at a deeper level. The summer heading into my freshman year of college, uh, my grandfather, uh, who'd been in great health, he literally just installed the flooring in a new construction house and did most of it by himself, had done physical labor most of his life, so just was in good shape and kept, kept him healthy. That summer, he, he got sick with uh, stomach flu-like symptoms, and I mean, people get sick, so we didn't, honestly didn't think anything of it. He didn't get better and didn't get better, and finally he was uh, in the hospital, and my parents said, hey, you should, you should come visit Grandpa, and when I walked into that hospital room, uh, I, I was shocked, um, because who I saw in the hospital bed was not how I remembered my grandfather. He'd lost a lot of weight, he was in a lot of pain, so he was on a lot of medication and could hardly communicate. And it would be a couple days later that he would be diagnosed with cancer. Two weeks ago, he'd been perfectly healthy, and now he has cancer. Had a surgery done, and the surgery went as well as it could have, but he continued not to improve. And finally, I remember this morning, it's kind of frozen in my mind. It was a beautiful, sunny July morning in Indiana. Drove to the hospital, walked into his hospital room, and I could tell that his, his breathing was labored. And my dad and my mom and my younger brother and I were, were standing there and watched my grandpa's chest heave and then breathe his last breath. And from the time he'd been diagnosed till the time he passed, it was four weeks. And I wasn't ready. And I was angry with God and I was upset. And I remember having this conversation. I said, why him? Why now? Why cancer? He'd been healthy his whole life. I mean, just a month before that, he'd been doing physical labor still and was still in great shape. Why now when I have this opportunity for them to be present and close and a part of my life? Why take him? And that's my version of this sort of why God moment and this why God question. And I'm sure you have your version of that kind of moment. Maybe for you, it's like mine, the loss of a loved one, or maybe it's an abuse or trauma that you suffered as a child or a young adult, or maybe it's uh, an injury or an illness that has forever changed the trajectory of, of your physical well-being. But maybe you have this moment where you've been saying, why God, why this, why him, why her, why me? And I think sometimes what makes these kinds of questions so difficult is, is wrapped in this, or sometimes our, our accusations towards God of, of, of do you care? Are you even present in this? Or, or sometimes we assume that in the midst of our pain and suffering that, that maybe God just sort of spun the world into motion, stepped back and said, good luck. 
And so we, we come to this message in our intentional worship series, and this morning we're just supposed to talk about praise God for His Son. The problem is if you're in that why God season and you're asking that question during a difficult moment, for some of us we're saying, why in the world would I want to praise God for His Son? What's the big deal? What, what is this all about? And so this morning I want to dive into this question, why praise God for His Son? What is it that Jesus has done on our behalf? And as we unfold that question, I want to look at the, the book of Hebrews and to examine how the writer of Hebrews speaks into this scenario. Because he, here's the reality, is that we live in a broken and fallen world. If you read the Bible and you start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world and he sets all things in motion. By Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who were the first two people to inhabit the earth, they have rebelled against God and they have chosen their own plan and purpose, turning their back on him. And from that moment forward, we live in a broken, fallen world where all is not as it should be. And sometimes we're tempted as we look at the broken world that we live in, as we experience in a real way the brokenness of this world, we're tempted to believe that sin, death, and brokenness have the last word. But the truth that Scripture teaches and the truth that I hold to is that sin, death, and brokenness do not have the last word. And this is precisely what the writer of Hebrews will push into. The writer of Hebrews, many scholars think that the book of Hebrews is actually an ancient sermon written to be orally delivered to the people that it was intended for. And as you read the book of Hebrews, you find out that the, the most likely urban population that this was written to were a people who themselves were familiar with suffering. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, I know that you've suffered. You've been in prison. You've had your possessions confiscated. You've stood by as your family members have been imprisoned. And he writes this sermon to a group of people who have experienced suffering. And in part, he wants to tell them encourage, uh, to be encouraged in their faith, to stay the course and to persevere. And at the heart of this message of perseverance for the writer of Hebrews is this message that God is still moving and acting on their behalf. So I want to approach this through three questions today. Number one, I want to ask, what is it that God intended to do through Jesus? What is the implications of that for us, and how do we respond to what God has done for us through His Son? So as we dive into these questions, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There we read this. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he'd provided the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And right away, one of the first things that the writer of Hebrews suggests and that he presses into is he says, listen, God is still active and involved in the world. For these people, the, the book of Hebrews that it was written to, he says, God has not forgotten you in the midst of your suffering. And he affirms this in, in twice in these four verses. He says, listen, God has spoken to you. And as God speaks into this existence of ours, as God speaks into the world that we live in, God is being active and present and still at work. And the writer of Hebrews says, in, in the past, he says, God spoke by the prophets, he says, at many times and in various ways. And the language here suggests that for the writer of Hebrews, when God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways, we got a sense of God's redemptive plan in fragments. 
So if you read, for example, the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Jonah in the Old Testament, as you read the story of those prophets, you go, okay, I get a glimpse of what God's doing here, and I get a glimpse of who God is here. But as the writer of Hebrews continues, he says, but now in these last days, he says, God has spoken to us by his son. And the implication that you get that will flesh out further is that this word that God has spoken to his son is final and full and definitive. And so not only is God still present and, and, and intimately involved with our world, but God has sent his son Jesus to deal definitively with the problem of sin. So he says that Jesus provided purification for sin and he has spoken this full and final word. And in Jesus, the full redemptive plan of God's purpose is made known. So what is this plan? How did it unfold for us and what does it mean for us? The answer to this question for the writer of Hebrews is so important that in chapter 2, verse 1, he gives this cautionary word. He says, we must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so we don't drift away. He says, in other words, this, this message of what Jesus has done for us, he doesn't just say we should pay pretty good attention. He says, no, we should pay the most careful attention to this message, he says, because it's of the ultimate and most important significance because in Jesus, God has spoken the final word. So what is this plan of salvation and redemption? Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. From here, the writer of Hebrews will begin to describe in detail this work of Jesus on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So God's plan, the saving work of Jesus. In Hebrews 2.14, I want us to hone in on this first. The writer of Hebrews says something that I think is profound and beautiful and mysterious and mind-boggling and hope-giving all at the same time. He says, since the children, that, that's you and me, since we have flesh and blood, it says he too, he's talking about Jesus here, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of sin and death. So God's plan for redemption begins with this reality that Jesus shares in our humanity, that Jesus takes on flesh and blood. And so when we think about what it is to be a follower of, of Jesus, to, to put our faith in who he's revealed himself to be, we believe as Christians in one God, but we also affirm and teach what's called the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we believe that, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this, what we're affirming is one God 
in three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they exist in relationship with one another. Now, if this isn't totally clear, don't worry, you're in good company, because for 2,000 years, the church has been trying to put words to this. And church, I think at some level, this defies our ability to understand in its fullness. But what I think is so amazing here is that the writer of Hebrews says that the Son, he says the Son took on flesh and blood, and Jesus shares in our humanity, and Jesus becomes a person just like us. And I find this mind-boggling that the God of all creation comes to us as as a human, as one of us. I love the way Philippians 2 says this. Philippians says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, God left the glory of heaven and Jesus came down and took on flesh and blood just like us. And what I love about this is God sees our broken, sin-sick world, and God doesn't go, oh, good luck, I'm, you guys made a mess of this, I'm, I'm just going to stand off at a distance. No, the beauty of this is that in the broken and, and fallen world that we live in, God sees that brokenness, and God himself enters our broken world in and through his son, Jesus. In this series, uh, the last four weeks, we've been talking about attributes of God. So we've talked about praise God for his faithfulness, praise God for his compassion, praise God for his righteousness, praise God for his greatness. And and those are great, but at some level, those attributes, God's greatness and faithfulness and compassion and righteousness, those, those are somewhat abstract. But what I love about this is in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, the writer says that the son Jesus, God in the flesh, is the radiance of God's glory. He says that this way. He says, the exact representation of his being. In other words, in Jesus, God in the flesh, we can see in a tangible, real-life way what the greatness and the faithfulness and the compassion of God looks like. And it looks like a Savior who left the glory of heaven and stepped down into a broken world and took on flesh and blood just like us. Now, the second thing that the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, he says this. He says, we see Jesus who was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so not only do we believe that that God became man in Jesus Christ and entered this world, but we believe that Jesus laid down his life on the cross dying for us. And I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says, he tasted death for us. And the implication is that Jesus tastes death so that we don't have to. Because if we go back to that problem of sin that we talked about with Adam and Eve, that rebellion against God, Scripture tells us and declares to us that the wages of sin, what we rightfully deserve as a result of our rebellion against God's plan and against God's purpose is death. A spiritual death and an eternal death in judgment apart from and separated from God. But what I love about this is the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, God in the flesh, dies on the cross. He tastes death for us so that we don't have to. And I love the language he uses. He says, he broke the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he brings freedom to those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And I think we live in a culture that needs hope. We live in a culture where some have sort of a nihilistic bent, 
where they would say, what meaning is there in life? Like we're born, we, we suffer, we, we try to find meaning and, and then we die and what good is there? But church, we believe in a bigger, in a grander story. We believe in a God who sent his son to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bring healing to a broken world so that we might know the fullness and the freedom that he offers. And did you notice in chapter 9 that it says this? It says, he's now crowned with glory and honor. So church, not only do we believe that God stepped out of heaven, that Jesus became a man and died on the cross, but we believe that Jesus rose again and he now sits enthroned as a king at the Father's right hand. If, if all Jesus did was die for our sins, there wouldn't be much hope. But we believe that Jesus, three days after dying, rose again. And in his resurrection, he breaks the power of sin and death and evil. And so Jesus shares our humanity. He tastes death for us, and he breaks the power of sin and death, and he brings freedom and hope for us. So what does this mean for us? What are the implications? What are the real-life, day-to-day implications of this for you and I? One of the implications of this that I think we see in the writer of Hebrews is that Jesus can identify with our suffering. Notice what he says in verse 17 and 18. He said, The Son, He, had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Why? In order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. Catch this. It says, Because He Himself suffered when He is tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, church, we have a God who, when he saw the brokenness and the sin that existed in our world, God didn't stand far off and say, good, good luck, I hope you figure it out. No, God, through his son Jesus, entered his creation, and Jesus himself can identify with our suffering. If you read Hebrews chapter 2 closely, you'll see that three times it references the suffering of Jesus. It wasn't that, that Jesus comes to earth as, as God's son, as God in the flesh, and gets to just hit the easy button and get out of hard things. No, the writer of Hebrews affirms that, in fact, Jesus did experience suffering. And he says, because Jesus suffered, he is able to help us in the midst of our suffering. When we are tempted, we can take hope in the fact that Jesus experienced that same kind of temptation, and he shows us and models for us the way through to victory. Think think back to your your why God question. That, that moment in your life that was difficult where you wrestled with what God was up to in your life and it maybe didn't make sense. Maybe in that season of difficulty, you had some well-meaning people who tried to speak encouragement in your life. And one of the things I've noticed is that if someone hasn't experienced what you're going through, they're going to try to speak encouragement, but in the back of your mind, you're going, yeah, but, but you, don't, you don't really understand. I had well-meaning people trying to encourage me in the, the death of my grandfather who themselves hadn't experienced the death of a close loved one. And, and I sincerely appreciated their attempt, but at some level I knew they couldn't relate to me. They hadn't experienced that. It's fundamentally different when someone who has walked where you have walked can pull up a chair right beside you and say, I know it's really hard. I've been there too. You'll get through this. And, and what I love about what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus is he says, Jesus himself, in becoming human and taking on flesh and blood, he has experienced suffering, and the God of all the universe can pull up a chair beside you and say, I know, I've been there, there's a way through, let me help. Because Jesus can identify with our suffering. The second implication of this for us, 
and I think this is profound, is that Jesus gives us an invitation into a new life and a new family. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, he makes us holy, and those who are made holy, that's us, he says this, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I I think this is amazing that the God of all the universe looks at you and he looks at me, even in our sin and rebellion, even in our rejection of him, the God of all the universe looks at you and I and says, you're my brother, you're my sister, and Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with us. Have you ever had a moment where you're out in public with someone who embarrasses you and you're ashamed to be identified with them? If you've got kids, you say, yeah, every day of the week when I take my kids in public, right? I, I had this, uh, this memory, this moment with my, my other set of grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Um, they took myself, my younger brother, and my cousin. I think we were all like somewhere in the ages of like 8 to 10, somewhere in that age range. And this was rural Indiana, so my grandparents, you know, they wanted to take us to spend some time with them and just have some fun. And so we do what you want to do when you have a crazy, wild night in rural Indiana. We drove around and looked at the cornfields, right, as one does. So my grandparents, you know, they take us out and we're having this fun time with them. But we're boys between the ages of like 8 and 10, and so we're rambunctious and we're tired of being in the car. And so they decide, hey, let's, we'll go to McDonald's, we'll get some ice cream, we'll stretch our legs for a little bit. And I'll be honest, and I'll fully confess, my brother, my cousin, and I, we were awful, right? So we go into this McDonald's, and we succeed within the first three minutes of setting off the emergency exit alarm, which then shuts down the restaurant for about four to five minutes while they try to find the key for this emergency door that they apparently had never used before, right? So we run out the emergency exit, we get out in the parking lot, and we're, we think it's the funniest thing ever, right? Right? And because we're boys, we just start throwing stuff. We pick up all these pine cones and we're chucking them at the house next door to this McDonald's. And as we're throwing pine cones, this man comes up over the wooden fence. He goes, hey, stop throwing pine cones at my house. And we just laughed again. And my grandpa, who's walking behind us, this man goes, hey, are those your kids? And my grandpa goes, nope, not my kids. And he just keeps walking. And I was like, grandpa, when it gets real, like you just disown us like that? But I think he was just so embarrassed at the way that we had behaved and humiliated he and my grandma that he's like, nope, not mine. And technically he's right, right? Like we're not technically his, so he kind of gets away with it. But it was this moment where he goes, no, 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 like they're crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm not associated with them. And what I think is so amazing about this truth of what the writer of Hebrews says is that in the midst of our sin and brokenness, our rejection of God, Jesus doesn't look at us and say, no, 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 I'm not with them. In the middle of our sin and brokenness and imperfection, Jesus provides a way for us to be purified from sin. He dies on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. And then he turns around and says, you're my brother, you're my sister. And there's this invitation into new life and relationship and restoration and reconciliation. How many of us have spent good chunks of our lives trying to find approval and acceptance from from our parents or from our peers, and we've experienced abandonment and rejection and alienation? And now the God of all creation says, I am not ashamed to own you as family, to say that you are my brother and you are my sister. And I find something deeply comforting and dignifying and hope-giving about this idea. The final implication I think that we see in this unfolding plan of God's redemption is there there is a life to come in which victory is finally and fully known. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this. It says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. And as the writer of Hebrews, as he talks about the throne of God, he's talking about Jesus now sitting enthroned at the Father's right hand. He says, Jesus is going to rule and reign forever. He says this, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, let me break this down a little bit. When you were a king and you were sitting on your throne, your scepter is the image and the symbol of your authority. And what I love about this is the writer of Hebrews says, the symbol of the authority of Jesus is one of justice. And he is a king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And the idea is that Jesus, we believe he's going to return one day as our king, and he will finally and fully set all things right. And Jesus will bring justice to injustice. He will bring righteousness where once there is wickedness. And Jesus undoes the sin, death, brokenness, injustice, and wickedness that we're so familiar to. And so we know and we hope and believe that Jesus will return finally and fully to set all things right. And the writer of Hebrews, I think, would tell us, pay the most careful attention to this and pour your life into this. So here's a key question, then. How do we respond to this? If we believe this story of God's unfolding plan of redemption, that Jesus took on flesh and blood, died on the cross, and rises again to sit enthroned at the Father's right hand, and he'll return again, how do we respond to the beauty and the significance of this story of redemption? I think there's three ways that the writer of Hebrews suggests that we respond. The first, I think he calls us to live a holy life. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, both Jesus, who makes people holy, and us, who are made holy, are of the same family. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now in chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says, your identity is fundamentally changed. You are brothers and sisters, but now you are made holy. Because Jesus died on the cross and his shed blood means our forgiveness of sins and we can be made pure and whole and right with him. I think there's two components to this idea of holiness. One is the idea of being made pure. That because Jesus dies for us, our sins can be forgiven. Scripture tells us, right, that the wages of sin is death. Jesus dies that for us, paying the penalty, washing us. But the second component of holiness is a thing was said to be holy when it was set apart for service to God. And so the writer of Hebrews says that that we are to step into this new life, living a holy life set apart in service for God. And so that means tomorrow morning when you step foot in your office or you wake up as a stay-at-home parent to take care of your family, you are doing that job, you are doing that vocation, but you have an ulterior kingdom motive at play. And this is why I think the second way the writer of Hebrews calls us to respond is to focus our eyes on Jesus, to become fixated on him. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And and here's what I've noticed. The thing that I become fixated on tends to affect the trajectory of my life. We tend to follow where we're fixated. What's your life fixated on? When it comes down to it, what are you pursuing? What are you hoping to achieve? The writer of Hebrews tells us, keep your eyes focused and fixed. Become preoccupied with him. Maybe you've heard the, the, the old adage, someone can become so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard people say that? 
And it's kind of this idea that a person is, they've got their head so much in the clouds that they're not thinking about right here and right now. And, and I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that we become sort of a socially awkward, holy roller. But what I mean is that we're focused and fixed on Jesus, living a holy life, saying my life is not my own. It's set apart for him. And so what we want to do now is bring the culture of heaven down to earth. And so as you step into your workplace, as you lead your team, as you invest in your family, you were doing so with the heart, the mind, and the attitude of Jesus as we live a set-apart, holy life. Finally, how do we respond to this? I think the writer of Hebrews calls us to hold confidently to our hope. And our hope is this unfolding narrative of God's story of sending his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He says, hold to this. Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, pay the most careful attention to this. So what's our application today? Again, I want to leave you with three things. The first thing I want to suggest today that we can do to apply this is recommit ourselves to worship. On a theological level, worship is all about this idea of revelation and response. And what we believe is that through his son and through his word and through creation, God has shown himself to us. We have seen God's greatness and his compassion and his mercy. God has revealed himself to us. Worship then becomes our response back to the goodness and the graciousness of God. And so as a church, when we gather on a Sunday morning, this is not the totality of worship. You worship as you live a holy life tomorrow morning in your job, in your family life. But when we gather as a corporate community, what we're doing is remembering and responding to God's saving work. I mean, think about the, the lyrics that we were singing this morning. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. What we're testifying to that is that we've seen God's goodness and, and, and time after time we've put him to the test and he's come through. And when we gather as a body and corporately affirm that, what we're doing is thinking back and collectively remembering God's gracious and saving work for us. And here's why I think this is so important. is because worship, I think, has a way of changing our perspective. And he, here's what I mean. Imagine that this is your life journey. You're going to be represented here by this cute little stick figure man. And in your life journey, if you're like me and know the reality of living in this broken world, there's this moment where you encounter an obstacle. We'll call this your circumstances. And the challenge, when you come up against a circumstance that's difficult, a trial or a struggle, my tendency and my temptation is to become fixated on my circumstances. And I look at this thing and I can't get through it and I can't get around it and I can't get past it. For me, it's the question of why did you take my grandpa now? Why him? Why cancer? Why at this time in his life when I was just looking forward to get to having him in proximity? And I can get so focused on my circumstances that suddenly my circumstances seem bigger than they really are, more insurmountable than they really are, and they begin to define my life in a way that's not healthy. But when we recommit to worship and remembering and responding to who God is, is, what it does is it changes our perspective and it lifts our perspective from our circumstances to our Savior, who is a king. And when we lift our perspective from our circumstances to our Savior, suddenly our circumstances are redefined and they're seen in proper perspective. And we recognize that there is a God who is king who sits enthroned over above our circumstances a God who has become flesh and knows what it is to run into these kind of circumstances. So I think we need to recommit to being a people of worship. Secondly, I think we need to respond to God's invitation to relationship. 
If you don't know him, I pray that today would be a moment that you would respond to his invitation to know him, to be reconciled to him, to walk in relationship with him. And if today is the day that you would make that decision right through those double doors after this service, we've got a prayer chapel in there and a team who would love to pray with you and talk more with you about what it is to follow Jesus. But if you don't know him, respond to that invitation. And finally this morning, maybe there are some who need to release a place of burden or brokenness. Maybe you've been stuck in that that why God place. You've been stuck in this place where your circumstances, this difficult thing that you can't get past has defined you. And what I've noticed is that if I hold on to my circumstances with an iron fist of bitterness, it calcifies into resentment and my heart gets pretty hard. So maybe this morning you need to release a place of brokenness to him and God's not going to take it and fix it right away. But God will go to work in your heart and in your life, giving you a new heart that's open and receptive to his word and to his work. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want to leave you with this one thing. Your story is not done. There is more to be written, and sin, death, and brokenness do not have the last word, but Jesus himself has the final word. Let me close with this out of Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, this is this moment where Jesus is returning and John, the writer of Revelation, is describing this moment. So just receive this this morning. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, that's Jesus, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will be their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Catch this. It says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He says, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus again, said, I am making everything new. And he says, write this down because this is trustworthy and true. In other words, you can hang your hat on this. This is right. This is good. Jesus can make all things new. And there's that moment coming when he will finally and fully set all things right.